0: welcome to fifth walls fly on the wall podcast where we explore the shifts occurring in real estate technology and society that are driving our cities towards a more equitable green and tech enabled future i'm your host brendan wallace in today's episode i catch up with willie walker the chairman and CEO of commercial real estate finance and lending firm Walker and Dunlop, Willie shares data-driven insights from across the hospitality, retail, and multifamily asset classes, and explains how the firm's technology strategy played into its lending of 6.6 billion dollars in Q2 of 2020. We also discuss the current flow of innovation across the U.S. From the migration of knowledge workers to major tech and real estate companies and those making decisions to relocate their headquarters enjoy the conversation well willie thank you so much for joining where are you coming in from today
1: i'm at my home in denver colorado brendan
0: nice nice um well would you mind just giving people a bit of background on walker and dunlop the, both how it was founded and what it has evolved into today Sure. So the
1: company was founded by my grandfather back in 1936 uh, as a single-family mortgage origination company. And then in the 1950s, it sort of morphed from single-family into uh, commercial. And the firm was really a um, a local mortgage banking company in Washington, D.C. from the 1950s until the late 1980s um, when Walker and Dunlop formed a joint venture. Um, to become one of the first Fannie Mae dust lenders. And so um, we received the third Fannie Mae dust license in 1988. Uh, and I believe that we are the only sort of original dust company that actually still holds the original license that was given to them because lots of companies have traded and they've all rolled up into much bigger enterprises today. And um, and so for up until about 2004, we were a small commercial mortgage brokerage firm in Washington, DC, kind of the mid Atlantic. And then we had a Fannie Mae dust license. We were, I think the 12th largest Fannie Mae dust lender uh, in the country. And we didn't have offices across the country. We were getting our loans through a correspondent network of mortgage banks across the country. And so I joined the firm in 2004, end of 2003, and really focused us on a couple things. One was trying to build a national platform. Um, second was, getting licenses from Freddie Mac and from HUD so that we could expand our multifamily lending operation and um, really trying to take the company, if you will, kind of to the next level from being a small regional company um, up to being a real national player. And fortunately, if you fast forward 16, 17 years later, um, we've gone from uh, less than 50 employees to 920 employees. We've gone from one office to 40 offices We've gone from a company that was valued around $25 million to a company that's market cap is right now about $2 billion and was close to $2.5 billion before the COVID crisis. Um, and um, we've gone from doing less than a $1 billion of annual loan originations to over $32 billion on the last 12 months. And our loan portfolio when I joined Walker & Delamp was $3 billion and it just crossed the $100 billion uh, uh, mark Two weeks ago, three weeks ago. So we've been successful and we've we went public in 2010, which allowed us to get capital and continue to buy companies. We've been quite acquisitive along that kind of trajectory of the last 15 years, Brendan. And um, I think one of the big keys to all of that success in acquisitions is that as we have gone out to find companies, we A have looked for companies that had a culture that was consistent with what welcome knowledge culture is. And then I think the second thing is that we never acquire a company thinking that we know more or better than they do. So whenever we acquire a company, we're acquiring them for the people and for the thoughts that they have and how they do what they do. And so I think that as we brought, you know, nine, 10 different companies into Walker and Dunlop, there's always a sense of, we're not the ones who know everything. We're not the ones you've got to adhere to our policies, procedures, and the way we do things. Um, And so by maintaining the cultural framework, as well as being, if you will, accommodating to the executives who've joined us over time, We've been able to maintain all those people, maintain the really good things that we've acquired with all these companies, and been able to grow.
0: And today, like what percentage of the business is multifamily capital markets?
1: So about 85% of the business is multifamily, 80, 85%, and the other 15 to 20% is the broader commercial market. Um, we were Fannie Mae's largest dust lender last year, um, have been for five of the last seven years, uh, four of the last seven years, excuse me. Uh, We were Freddie Mac's third largest partner last year. We were HUD's third largest partner last year. Um, And so being so big with Fannie, Freddie and HUD sort of by default makes us really big in multifamily, but we've also been investing a lot over the past couple of years to bring on mortgage bankers uh, and brokers into Walker and Dunlop who focus on not just multifamily, but office and retail and hospitality. We recruited a great team earlier this year in Manhattan that had been with JLL um, and um, they are the biggest finance team in New York, and they do everything. They do office retail, hospitality, as well as multi. Um, and then on the investment sales side, we have not broadened beyond multifamily. So we entered the multifamily investment sales market back in 2015, when we acquired a company called Englund Financial, and we have been slowly but surely adding teams across the country. And today we've got pretty close to a national footprint. There are a couple of cities where we don't have the very best multifamily investment sales teams, um, but we were on track to do somewhere north of 8 to $9 billion in multifamily investment sales pre-COVID. Um, and we're back up and going. We'll do somewhere around, we've told the street, $1.3 to $1.4 billion of multifamily investment sales in Q3, which given how slow the overall market is in Q3, that's going to be a really good sort of number for us to put up in our Q3 multifamily investment sales volume.
0: And... You know, from that perspective, obviously having so much exposure to multifamily and multifamily capital markets, and given how much multifamily represents of the U.S. commercial real estate market, there's this sense, I guess, where people see the response, the capital market's response to the COVID crisis as being uniform across all of real estate. And so there's this prediction of like a secular retraction across all of real estate but it's probably a bit more nuanced than that. And I imagine with your exposure to multifamily, you have a unique perspective on that. Um, How would you describe multifamily as being affected differently than the rest of commercial real estate right now? And this is obviously to contextualize it. This is early September, 2020 because things change so fast.
1: Yeah. I think at the end of the day, people have got to live somewhere. And at the end of the day, that's I mean, this crisis has shown as we've all been sheltering in place Uh, previously, and now all many people are still working remotely, the focus has been on housing, on home, on safety. And so um, as people have to live somewhere, both the single family as well as the multifamily sectors have done extremely well. And what we haven't had to do during this crisis is go to the office. We haven't had to go to a movie. We haven't um, had to go to a hotel. And so all of those other commercial real estate asset classes have been hurt significantly. The hospitality industry, dramatically. The retail industry, less so, but still dramatically. Office, much less so than those two other asset classes just because of the the nature of long-term leases on office buildings. We've got 40 offices across the country, and I still have all 40 of those leases today. We haven't gotten out of any of our leases. If the pandemic continues to go much longer um, into 2021, I'm certain that we'll have leases that are expiring and we will have a hard decision to make of either renewing the lease or getting out of the space. But because of the long duration of those leases, office is held up very well as well. And then multi, because people have to live somewhere, multi is held up exceptionally well. And so if you look at our loan servicing portfolio, which has $100 billion of loans in it, um, and as I said previously, 85% is multi. So the other $15 billion has... Um, hospitality loans in it, 70% of those loans are in forbearance today, 70. Okay. The next is retail loans that has retail loans in it. About 40% of our retail loans are in forbearance today. And forbearance is a leading indicator of default, right? It's where people can't make their interest payments and they come to us and say, I want forbearance. So retail is north of 70. Uh, just excuse me. Hospitality is north of 70. Retail is north of 40 offices in the teens, industrial is a little bit north of 1%, and multi is well below 1% forbearance. And it's of of course our biggest uh, portfolio as well. And so what you're seeing in those numbers is just that where the stress is. The stress is not in the multifamily market, the stress is in really the hospitality market and in the retail markets.
0: And do you think that there's any trends within that? Like meaning, are you seeing, obviously you're not nearly seeing the same levels of stress, in multifamily as you are in office or as as you are in retail but within multifamily are you seeing kind of any just like sociological or demographic patterns where it appears that people are in fact leaving cities the suburban multifamily is more consistent with pre-covid performance than urban multifamily are there any trends like that that are of note
1: so first i would say that the a's and the b's have held up exceptionally well and I would put one. This is a this is a, uh, a caveat to that, which doesn't come from data, just my sense of things. So this is not like we've got some asset in downtown Manhattan that's seen its rent roll get just <coughs> devastated. But I do believe that somebody who was um, uh, vice president at Goldman Sachs, uh, paying fifteen thousand dollars a month for their Class A apartment building in downtown Manhattan, has said, "Why am I here? Because I can go buy that." house in Greenwich, Connecticut, that's been sitting on the market for four years and wasn't moving it $2 million, I can put a mortgage on it and my mortgage payment's going to be $9,000 a month and not $15,000 a month and I own a $2 million home. So there's no doubt in my mind, and by the way, I've done the math on all that stuff. So that's actually what it would be if you wanted that. I went and actually looked at a property in Greenwich and did all the math on it. And someone who was in a really nice, and I don't want to use related this doesn't pertain to related, but related has a lot of Class A office buildings, uh, apartment buildings in downtown Manhattan. So, if you're in a beautiful $15,000 a month two-bedroom apartment in Manhattan, you're looking to move to Greenwich. But that's not the market. You know, that's not the broad market. That's a that's a very small subset. Uh, quite honestly, of people that you and I both know and work with and have done deals with before, et cetera, et cetera. But more broadly than that, the As and Bs have held up extremely well. And then the, um, the lower end of the market on real affordable housing, where people are getting half contracts and they're getting subsidies from the government, that's held up extremely well. The one place where we've seen degradation to rent rolls is in what I call workforce housing, um, where um, on the A's and B's, most people could work remotely. Um, it didn't really, there weren't big layoffs in the kind of the white collar workforce. And those held up in rent rolls of 95, 96. I had a call this week with someone who had 99% collections in their portfolio in the month of August. So that part of the market is held up exceedingly well. Where you're getting rent rolls that are only being collected at sort of 70 to 85% is in workforce housing, not, a, you know, not affordable housing in the sense that it's got a capital A where it's got subsidies to it but where there have been layoffs, where people have been laid off from working at a restaurant, where they were working in an airline. And that's where you see landlords having to sit there and really both figure out how to re-tenant their buildings, um, having to work with the whole eviction moratorium and can they actually get people who aren't paying their rent to move out. Um, And then the final piece of it all is, if they're not covering their
0: mortgage payment, are they going to start feeding the asset because they know at some point that's going to turn back around. Right. And... And are there any, I guess, looking out a bit into the future um, as kind of the knowledge workers in like big cities like San Francisco and New York and Miami and Chicago have all had this kind of remote work environment like thrust on them. They weren't expecting it. They're now working remotely or at least most companies that I know are. And I think some people at least have been surprised with kind of how much productivity has held up within their organizations despite this. And so I think a lot of knowledge workers, it seems like, are probably going to reflect on, well, do I have to be in the same physical location where my company is? And one articulation of that could be, as you said, the the banker who's considering moving from downtown Manhattan to Greenwich. But um, to some extent, it feels like states might actually start to compete for these knowledge workers as well. So um, do you think that there's going to be a migration of knowledge workers across the U S. And do you think there will be certain cities that will be obvious winners and obvious losers to that migration? So I guess it's two questions. One, do you think that trend is afoot? And two, who do you think wins and who do you think loses?
1: So I think the trend is very much afoot. How sustainable it is, I think is a real question mark. Um, The moment that, I I got people at Walker and Dunlop. We got, as I said, over 900 employees. I've got people at Walker and Dunlop working all across the country. And somebody who was in Manhattan may be in Boise, Idaho today, for all I know. It doesn't really make that much difference. Um, But at some point, I'm going to say, New York team, let's get back together. Everyone's got to be back in the New York office. So they may be, you know, they may have gone on a short-term lease in Boise. They may be living with their parents. They may be whatever they're doing. The point being is right now, it doesn't really matter. It's going to matter when CEOs like me say culture and creativity are created in the office. And, um, so one of the big issues there is if I want to maintain the culture at Walker, and I want to continue to be creative, I've got to have people gather. I've got to have people come back together. And as you said, Brendan, Productivity has been off the charts. I mean, we are more efficient at Walker today, doing more deal flow than we've ever done. And the the issue that I have is how long can we just continue to be productive versus when do we need to do something to maintain the exceptional corporate culture that we have at Walker Null? I'm getting on the road next week and I'm going to visit with our teams in Chicago and Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We're having an outdoor less than 10 person sort of fireside chat with me. The, I don't have an agenda. All I wanna do is go see people. All I wanna do is sit outside, like I did this morning with a team from here in Denver, and just say, hi, how are you, what's going on? Cause I, you know, it's great seeing you here and you're telling me that you're in New York and seeing your parents and all that stuff. But as you well know, if you and I were in Park City having a beer, looking across the table at each other, the, the nature of the conversation is distinct. The creativity behind the conversation is less sort of programmatic and more kind of free-flowing. And so, as I discussed with Eric Yan of, uh, of Zoom, who I had on our webcast this past Wednesday, I said, you know, Eric, I get it that people can create a culture via Zoom, but what about the whiteboard experience? And we actually had a conversation about kind of Zoom creating a whiteboarding experience on Zoom, where people just kind of throw out ideas and start to brainstorm and do different things. So I think that you've got to get back to the offices at some point. And then the final thing that you're saying of what cities win and what cities lose. Um, you've seen a couple of things happen just recently that I think are noteworthy. Pinterest paid over $80 million to back out of a lease on their new headquarters in San Francisco, 80 million bucks. Now it was a $440 million lease over the next 10 or 15 years that they were gonna to have to pay if they moved into that headquarters. But an $80 million penalty to back out of a lease is one significant amount of money to back out of a lease to say, we don't want this additional space in San Francisco. First of all, the four landlords who had Pinterest in them and were thinking they were gonna lose them have a big smile on their face because Pinterest can stay in their buildings, which is great. You know, The new developers lose, but they also got a check for 80 million bucks, which I'm curious whether they're gonna to continue to build the building or put that 80 million bucks in their back pocket. Um, but you can't help but think that someone like Pinterest is making a decision about how many people they actually need in San Francisco and how big a corporate headquarters they need. The other one that I thought was interesting was you saw that Brett White announced. Uh, it's Cushman and Wakefield just announced that Brett just extended his contract and that he's moving to Dallas, Texas. So Brett today lives in Southern California. I know he's been on your. He's 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 met with you and been on this um, on on this podcast. Um, Brett's moving to, to Texas. Um, How long is it until the rest of Cushman and Wakefield moves from Southern California and from Chicago down to Texas? So I think that it's not only the fact that people can work sort of anywhere. I also think that this is a time when a lot of corporations are saying um, taxes are going to go up. um, People can work remotely. Let's move our corporate headquarters somewhere. where We're going to get the benefit of the tax structure. And then if everyone moves there, great. If only a certain percentage of people move there, that's fine because the people who stick behind, we've all gotten used to doing Zoom meetings. We can deal with kind of a bifurcated corporate structure where in the past when Boeing moved from Seattle to Chicago, that was a huge RFP process and they kind of shut everything down in Seattle and moved everything to Chicago. Mm -hmm. I don't think that corporate relocations are going to be the same way that they were when Boeing moved in the future just because technology allows all of us to stay so uh, connected.
0: Yeah, and I think that the, I think a lot of companies, and frankly, we're um, ourselves kind of navigating this right now. There's a fluidity to place that there just wasn't six months ago, um, and that's probably more extreme the the greater your business doesn't depend depend on place. To some extent, like what you're describing, as you want your New York team to be back in New York. There's a there's a location dependence to real estate that is that is obviously quite unique. Like you can't move a building; buildings are in a certain place. In our business, we can really do our jobs from anywhere. And we're also struggling with this question of how do you then build a culture in a digital environment? Um, And I think what we're hearing is that a lot of people, a lot of our employees and a lot of our portfolio companies are saying, we absolutely want to be in a city. That's clear. Like, I don't think that this is a, the conclusion is cities are over. I think what's being questioned is, do I want to be in the city I'm in? Um, and I'm hearing that a lot from California-based companies, um, which surprises me, right? Because California has been the innovation engine for you know the U.S. economy for the last century. And so, what happens if you know innovation starts to flow to Florida and Texas and Tennessee and you know Maryland? That's that's a very transformational change in like sociology, um, because. If you're a graduate of an engineering school, it's not so obvious where you might move in five years. Whereas, you know, in January of this year, you moved to San Francisco or the Bay Area. Um, So that'll be interesting.
1: Yeah, it's super interesting. And I think you're spot on it as it relates to the knowledge hubs. I would also say, as you think about knowledge, you also have to keep into account the schooling system. Uh, To pick a school in the city where you are right now, Dalton isn't going away, okay? And there are, you know, tens of thousands of families that would love to have their child get adult Dalton education to be able to go on to some really good university. And so I was just yesterday in Aspen, Colorado with a friend of mine who has an apartment in New York. He's just rented a place in Florida. He's become a Florida citizen and he's got his family in Aspen, Colorado. Um, And he's sitting there going, we're not going to live in Aspen because Aspen country day just, I'm not trying to, you know, disparage Aspen Country Day, but he just said the quality of the education isn't where we need it to be for our kids. And he's coming from a Manhattan framework. He thinks he's going to find it in Miami, but he just doesn't think he's going to find it in Aspen. And so as much as everyone's sort of saying, okay, well, let's move to Boise, Idaho, or let's move to Reno, Nevada. um, I, you know, I don't think, I may be wrong, but I don't think that there's an equivalent school to Dalton in Reno, Nevada, okay? No matter how nice it is, how low the tax structure is, And so I just think that there's also something about how families, where they go for um, entertainment, where they go for a style of living, where they go for education is super important to this whole mix. And so I would just say, you know, a lot of people have been saying, you know, don't discount New York. New York's going to come back. I do think New York comes back. Um, And it's because it's got certain things from a cultural standpoint, from a convening standpoint, from an education standpoint that are very difficult to replicate anywhere else.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with that. I was having a conversation with someone the other day where, you know, we were talking about what cities are the most resilient. It does feel like New York, I mean, New York's the cultural capital of the United States. Like it, it always, it always will have what makes New York, New York. Um, and it, and so I'm, I'm actually less talking about a city like New York. It's probably more cities like San Francisco, right? Where um, it's not a cultural capital or it it is a cultural capital, but only insofar as it's a aggregation of a bunch of knowledge workers around a particular industry, um, which is ironically the industry technology that will probably virtualize the first and the fastest and the most aggressively as kind of the Pinterest deal you were just referencing shows. Um, so it'll be interesting to see where that all nets out. Um, I wanted to ask you just about um, how Walker and Dunlop thinks about technology as kind of a totally separate thread, because I know you've had such a forward stance on, you know, trying to identify technologies that can enhance your business. Where did that come from? Was that part of your company's DNA from the outset, or was that injected? And how did you how did you introduce that ethos?
1: Uh, so first of all, look, we're, we're anything but sort of a tech company, but we have – a pretty good track record of implementing technology at WND for a pretty long period of time. Um, one of the only, the only reason that Eric Young came on my podcast day before yesterday is that Walker Nomop was a very early user of Zoom, for instance. I saw Zoom, my CTO showed it to me and I said, you know, he said, this is awesome. And I said, yeah, it's really great. Let's go. We implemented Salesforce at Walker and Dunlop in 2009. And even though 2009 doesn't sound like it's that long ago, if you look at the growth of Salesforce, today everybody's got Salesforce. Sounds like something, every you know, if you don't have Salesforce, you're sort of in the dark ages. Back in 2009, Salesforce was not in any way ubiquitous back in 2009. I can guarantee you in the commercial real estate industry, there weren't a lot of people using Salesforce back in 2009. So we have been, I would say, an early adopter to trying to use technology to drive our business I think the part of what we're doing today that's really exciting, and there was an article yesterday in Globe Street on exactly this, is that we're, we're trying to use AI and machine learning to get increasingly intelligent on our clients and our clients' needs. And so um, we've made very big investments in databases to get a good sense of how much debt and equity is outstanding across the commercial real estate landscape, and more specifically in the multifamily landscape. So if we walk into a meeting with a client today, they may never have done a piece of business with Walker and Dunlop and we've got a very very good sense of all of their equity partners and all of their debt partners. We know when their loans mature. We know who they've worked with in the past and as such one of the things that was kind of interesting about that was we started building that database 4 years ago. We brought it out 2 years ago and for the last 2 years we've been going in a meeting with people And we've been saying, hey, you know, I know you've got this loan with Wells Fargo. It terms in two years and we'd love to work on it when it actually comes up for refinancing. That's not new. Everyone sat there and looked through trep rolls and all sorts of stuff to figure out when loans mature. What we've done is built up enough analytics on it that we can basically synthetically run a pro forma on the asset. So when we go meet with you today, we can give you a refinancing scenario. So we're not, we don't even know, we don't just know the maturity date. We know all the characteristics of how the asset is performed and how the debt is performing as well. And so we can sit there and say, if you did it with us today, we can do this kind of a new loan. The interesting thing about it, Brendan, was for the last two years, that was responsible for about a billion dollars a quarter in incremental sales, where we would sit there and we said, we went to meet with these people, we found this loan, they came back to us at this point. It was good, but it wasn't great. On a platform that's done $32 billion of financing for the last 12 months, it's good, but a billion bucks a quarter, it's $4 billion a year of incremental financing. And then all of a sudden Q2 2020 hit and rates dropped. And all of a sudden, everybody and their brother who we previously met with called us up. It was like this confluence of using the technology to be insightful to our clients and then rates dropping where all those discussions that said, oh, you've got this loan with this lender or that loan with that lender, all of a sudden they all came together. And to give you a number on that, we did, we did $6.6 billion of lending in Q2, total lending. Of that $6.6 billion, a billion was brokered off to third parties. So we wouldn't even book a mortgage servicing right on it because it's going off to some life insurance company. So that takes you down to $5.6 billion. But of the $5.6 billion of lending we did in Q2, that had a mortgage servicing right attached to it, 5.2 billion were new loans to Walker and Dunlop. Brand new loans. They weren't coming out of our portfolio. They were a loan with a with a borrower of Walker and Dunlops that we'd never done before or a completely new client to Walker and Dunlop. And wow. that to me is just like uber exciting as it relates to the technology. It's not just that you can't just say, hey, we know what you've got in your loan. You've got to go make the relationship. You've got to create, create the bona fides to actually do it. And then when rates dropped, boom, we were there to take the phone call. Um, so that's one piece of it. And then I would just say real quickly, the other piece to it is we have an appraisal business, which we have started in a joint venture with a company called GeoFi. Um, I think, you know, GeoFi yeah. and GeoFi is using um, AI to do, you know, basically analytics on commercial real estate that have rarely been done. And what we're doing is we're basically automating 80% of the appraisal process. So you still need an appraiser to both analyze the data and then put a FIREA compliance stamp on that appraisal that it FIREA Phyria-compliant and that they've actually gone and visited the property. But all of the comp sets, all of the data analytics that right now are done by manual processes at our competitor firms, we've automated in partnership with Geofile. And so we see the very real opportunity where we can go and hire 30 MIA appraisers, 30, and have a national platform that can do thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of appraisals a year because the technology is going to generate all of them. And so that's another area that I'm really excited about where we're not trying to do a me too on, oh, we want to build an appraisal business that looks like CBREs or Cushman and Wakefields. We're taking a completely different tack to it of saying, we want this to be technology first. And at the same time, obviously, there's the human element and the human analysis and the human FIREA stamp that says, this meets standards.
0: And around appraisals, I'm, I'm curious, you know, one of the things is as we've looked at the space, you always hear almost reflexively, reflexively from, you know, traditional appraisal firms is that, oh, you have to have deep local domain expertise, that you, you have to have that, um, which of course makes sense to me. Although what I totally appreciate about what you've done is that collecting basic data about a unit or build quality is is fairly pedestrian, like you can just capture that data algorithmically. So when you say you have 30, you can have 30 appraisers manage the entire United States, do you still have that domain expertise that you're able to kind of like layer in on top of all that data collection?
1: Yeah, I mean, the the thing that's interesting about it is that if you ask, one of the appraisers at Walker and Dunlop who's come from one of our competitor firms, you know, we've been going around and picking off really, really good appraisers at all of our competitor firms that we, we haven't had an appraisal business in the past. So I'm sure that when these people have come across the Walker and Dunlop, people have been like, why, why are you going there? What are you doing? Like they don't have an appraisal business. Um, but the, 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 really interesting part about Brendan is the following. You go into the database and you have a property and what we consistently find is the technology tells you that the closest comp to the property isn't a mile down the road isn't five miles down the road it's in a city completely across the country so you're appraising a building in Miami Florida and the technology comes back and says the closest comp is this building that just sold in Seattle Washington hmm. you're like what like that like that doesn't make sense and but it, what it does is it, it actually does because the building quality is the same. The dog walk park and access to the dog walk park is the same. The Starbucks being a block away, uh, the parking lot configuration, all these different metrics that come into deriving value. What the GeoFi technology has done is it's basically weighted all of the various inputs that say a property is worth X or Y, which says to you that geography, just the fact that one property happens to be in Miami, Florida, doesn't necessarily mean that the closest comp to it is right down the street in Miami, Florida, It actually is in Seattle, Washington. And one of the challenges to all of that is that you then get that appraisal and you've got an appraiser who's used to seeing their comp set be within a five mile radius and you're asking them to use a comp that is 3,000 miles away. And so, yes, it's very much not only requiring that human input, but it's also um, hard, quite honestly, to get everyone to kind of put a lot of faith in it because it's such a new perspective to value.
0: Yeah, and it also provides almost... A higher, um, a higher level of transparency and immediacy to revaluing assets, right? Because if you're looking at one local market, there's only, only so many asset sales that will occur. But if you can have an aperture of the entire United States, there's asset sales occurring all the time. And do you think that that kind of gives you an edge then around the financing business, right? Because you're able to see these more immediate, more instant changes in asset values and then appropriately recommend financing. Is that is that an advantage you see long term? Yeah, very much so. I mean,
1: being able to derive value instantaneously. First of all, right now our investment sales team when they go do a BOB, it's a two week process. Right. Okay. And there's a lot of work that goes into it and we got a great team and they got great analysts and all that great stuff. But when you can go hit here and we'll give you within, you know, varying, you know, a very very tight bandwidth as it relates to our degree of accuracy um, value. And, and by the way, it's also dynamic. So right. we can sit there and say, as it moves, things might change. Rates might move as well. Yeah, you can almost
0: alert rate. yourself to say it's a good time mm-hmm. to refinance right now because we've just seen a bunch of trades in other markets that suggest you could refinance this right now. Um, that's, yeah,
1: that's exactly it. And the issue there is that there is a, you know, there's an acceptance process there. I mean, right. One of the big things that there's, there's not a banker at Walker and Dunlop who is not wildly, wildly fearful that we give them a number on the value and the value is actually an inflated number to what the value actually is when we come to doing a loan. And so all of a sudden, their 70% LTV loan is now a 75% LTV loan and we can't do it anymore. So as we put in more technology, you know, there's some old school ways of doing things where you have a really good sense of the appraisal and you wanna make sure that you're setting reasonable expectations to your client. Well, as you have full transparency into that process, um, the client obviously is going to like that transparency. But in an opaque world, which is what the world operates in today, all of that data flow, all of that valuation is done through human-to-human interactions and communication. And so one of the hardest things that we're going to face as we continue to launch this and put it out there is with increased transparency, there's both the good, that clients love transparency, but there's also the bad that at some point, that value might shift dramatically during the period of time and you can't put the genie back in the bottle. You know I mean? You can't sit there and try and get the appraiser to kind of stick to the previous valuation um, because of some, you know, Oh, it's got to get there because we got to get the deal done because it's going to be transparent. The market's going to determine it and everyone's going to have to adhere to that.
0: Yeah. It's funny. I was having this conversation about single family as well that it, you know, asset values start to approximate from uh, immediacy and from a transparency perspective, a stock price, right? Which, you know, leverage on an asset is not that dissimilar from leverage on a stock. The difference is the stock gets repriced hundreds of times every second, whereas an asset only gets repriced when you ask to reprice the asset. But if it's being repriced instantly, that does provide some benefits to the borrower, but it could also provide some downsides. And I'm sure there's, a lack of comfort with that 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 immediacy of getting value feedback so quickly. Very much so. Well, Willie, this has been so interesting, um, uh, both your perspective on just how multifamily is going to change, but also what you're doing around appraisals and technology. I'd love to continue the conversation sometime. So thanks for chatting.
1: Uh, it's great to see you, Brendan. Thanks uh, for having me on, and uh, congrats for all you've done with Fifth Wall. It's been great to see the investments you guys have made and the difference that a lot of your portfolio companies are making in the industry.
0: Definitely. And hopefully we can meet in person uh, and stop just- That'd being be great. Take me up on that beer in Park City when the two- Exactly. All right. Well, thanks, Willie.
1: All right. Have a great day.
0: Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fly on the Wall. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www dot fifthwall dot com.